Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, our guest is Erlene Cruz. She is the founder and executive director of Kitchen Connection Alliance, an organization that is devoted to educating global citizens on the promotion and development of a better food system. She is also a youth representative and steering committee member to the United Nations Department of Public Information, an adjunct professor at the NYU School of Public Health, of Global Public Health, and serves on the board of several educational and nonprofit organizations. Erlene has been engaged in public debate on issues like food insecurity and climate change and is focused on transforming the global food system through education. These are all topics that really resonate, I know, with me and with this audience, so I'm really happy to have you on the show, Erlene. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here, especially given all the work you've done in the space. It's truly an honor to be in your presence. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Well, why don't we begin by you telling us a little bit about the Kitchen Connection Alliance and how is this alliance working to promote a better food system globally? Absolutely. This project started in a personal way um, that eventually developed into a professional career. And of course, for many of us that are in the space, um, there is no separation at this point. (laughs) Food is one of the most ubiquitous aspects of humanity, and it allows us to contribute to a better planet or a worse planet, depending on the choices we make, if we have the choice. So even the ability to choose is very nuanced. And so taking it back a little bit, Kitchen Connection started after a trip to Ghana, uh, where I lost my wallet and uh, family took me into uh, their home, fed me, housed me, the whole nine yards, and led me to discover a lot about food culture and the way that food unites us. Um, In that moment, I thought about all of the things I'd seen leading up to that trip um, as it relates to food insecurity, and it propelled this idea in me to create uh, an organization that would allow people to not only cook together and eat together, but also to get to know one another, using food as the vehicle to getting to know each other better, to travel without leaving their homes. And once they were together around the virtual table, opening up the opportunity to actually make a difference as it relates to food systems. That's incredible. Yeah, I love how the, the kind of personal journey leads us to do incredible things. What can you tell us a little bit more about the types of activities that you all do with the Kitchen Alliance? Absolutely. It started with cooking classes. The big idea back in 2012 was to have online virtual cooking classes. And of course, this was pre-pandemic, pre-Zoom boom, where it was an innovative idea at the time to use technology to bring us closer together. And eventually, given our connection to the United Nations and uh, sustainability efforts and, and honestly, a lot of personal learning, we decided to use the cooking class aspect of it to engage around issues related to climate change, to conflict, to, to food insecurity, to economic insecurity and everything that you know is at the intersection of food and, and food systems. That's amazing. So you mentioned your role or your connection with the United Nations, and this is a really impressive, you know, I think, aspect of what you're doing of of being a youth representative and a steering committee member with the United Nations Department of Public Information. What does that role entail and how does this contribute to your overall mission? Absolutely. 
when I became involved with the UN Department of Public Information, now it's the Department of Global Communications, it was one of the first outlets that the UN created for youth to get involved across the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And so given my connection to food, I was you know, a graduate student at the time at New York University, focusing on food and food studies. Of course, I focused a lot on SDG2, which was zero hunger. And at the time, the conversation was heavily around reducing hunger, reducing conflict, reducing all of the things that made people food insecure. But of course, food insecurity, we know, stems from planetary health issues as well, like climate change. You work a lot on health and well-being, which is SDG 3. And so we realized that food was very intersectional across many of the sustainability agenda items of the United Nations. And so that trajectory led me to attend a lot of UN climate conferences with Kitchen Connection and the UNDGC to help develop and create the new UN Youth Office with a great focus on food and and climate change. And of course, eventually going back to teach at NYU, you know, offered the opportunity to teach at the School of Global Public Health and to bring the students back to the UN where they present their final solutions to some of these food systems challenges. So my journey in and outside of the UN has been a full circle symbiotic experience that has spanned a lot of, of you know, intersectional development goals. That's exciting. I'm, I'm just, as you're speaking, I'm, I was thinking, I wonder if, you know, if our audience is fully aware of what these United Nations Sustainability Development Goals are. Could you expound upon that a little bit? Just kind of explain, because it may be the first time for some of them to hear this this terminology. Absolutely. Right around the turn of the millennia, the UN came together to develop the UN Millennium Goals, which many people will remember. And a lot of the goals were, you know, around uh, health and reducing um, deaths around the world, bringing things to you know a minimum, but with you know the expiration of the goals, which were set to end in 2015, the UN got back together. All the member states came together and said, you know, we need new goals, more ambitious goals that are not just created by governments, but with people around the world. So the UN put out surveys all over the world where um, average people like myself could write about what they wanted to see their world to look like, you know, in 2030. And so after um, consultation around the world, um, the UN got back together and and came up with 17 goals, all with the ultimate, you know, trajectory of making the world better, making the world more sustainable for people, for planet and for prosperity. So they're obviously having a lot to do with planetary health, with human health, um, but also not forgetting the interrelation between human activity and and how the planet is impacted by it. Yeah, I think, you know, this interconnection between planetary and human health are are things that are deeply important to me, and I'm sure to many of our listeners. You know, one of the things that makes me worry a bit at night when I think about what's happening in the world is our our human population continues to expand. We met, I think, the size of over 8 billion, was it last November, you know, globally in terms of human population. And obviously, from the perspective of food, we're facing a real challenge in ensuring that all people have access to food, that all people are food secure, which is a big 
element of one of these sustainability goals. What have you learned in your interactions with this initiative about how achievable is that goal? And are we making progress towards that, towards a, a better future with food security? Absolutely. Dr. Quaib, some of the challenges that you reference are in a way a product of the beauty that has been human progress over the years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was talking to a doctor yesterday who, you know, I asked how, how does, you know, a certain type of cancer actually develop? You know, what are the gene mutations that take place? I'm no expert in human biology, but I'm deeply curious. And so he was telling me that a lot of people are living a lot longer. And so because of that, um, a lot more people are dying of cancer than before that previously people were dying of, you know, bubonic plagues and (laughs) other illnesses. Infectious disease. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, A lot earlier on. And so the fact that we're living longer is a product of the beauty of science, right? As a scientist that you are, you can attest to this, but it also presents us with many challenges Mm -hmm. as it relates to planetary health. With that, you know, comes the you know, uncertainty that is presented with the way that humans interact. The more people that are on the planet, the more conflicts there is, you know, because conflict, and we don't like to talk about it, is an inherent quality of humanity. Um, how we resolve it is is the key. And so in many ways, we're getting better at resolving conflict, and the planet is a better place than it was in the past. But in many ways, we're becoming more food insecure because technology is advancing to the extent that we can obliterate an entire people, you know, entire country in the blink of an eye. And so we're living in this very hostile environment as it relates to conflict, which is one of the key drivers of food insecurity. As it relates to climate change, I mean, all of us are privy to the fact that it's worse than ever. And we're seeing it in front of our eyes. People who maybe even two, three, four, five years ago would have denied that this is a thing are changing their minds because their homes might have been, you know, obliterated. And and so climate change is obviously another aspect of, of food insecurity that is a leading cause of hunger around the world. And then all of these things, conflict and climate change, lead to economic insecurity, which is the third largest contributor to food and food insecurity. And so things are getting better, but even the things that are good are contributing to some of the bad. So we're living in a very challenging environment, but I remain optimistic because in this environment, education is key. The more we know, the more we band together, the more we talk about it. So yes, thank you for the opportunity to be here to share. The more we can say, how do we fix this? And I'm optimistic that in our lifetime, we can do something robust about the issues and I'm here to see it. I'm here to see it in this lifetime. That's great. Well, I'm inspired by the optimism. And I know that we have many young listeners, many students, graduate students, undergraduates, high school students that listen to the show across the globe. I think there are more than 85 countries that tune into this show. I haven't shared that before uh, with the audience, but I love the international base here that we have. And I know there are people listening from across the globe that might be wondering, how can I contribute to the future of food security? I mean, our listeners are people passionate about food. So what advice would you give to young people that really want to make a difference? Like, how would they even get started with these initiatives? Absolutely. 
Um, I mentioned before that education is key, mm -hmm. that banding together is key, that recognizing our individual power is key. Because if we have the luxury to eat three meals a day, those are three options that we have, as I mentioned, to make a positive contribution to the issue. And so if we're families that have caretakers or who have young children that we are you know, caring for, then these are people that rely on us to educate them. And so it does have a big impact. You know, our actions speak louder than words more than ever in this case. I remain a bit subjective in my response because while we put together a cookbook, the cookbook in support of the United Nations for people and planet with many UN agencies that tackle issues around food insecurity, biodiversity, the food system, sustainable consumption and production, and climate change with carbon calculations attached to every recipe. Great. You know, it's only a guide, and we like to say a non-prescriptive guide to how we might be able to eat if we're willing and able to contribute to a better food system. Because the truth is that not everyone should eat every recipe in that book. Not, every can, not everyone can eat the recipes in that book for affordability reasons, for accessibility reasons. You know, I personally can't buy the Thai coconuts that are in one of my favorite recipes in the book because it's simply not sustainable. And so the same solutions that are great for one context become counterintuitive and really terrible solutions in another. And so my response is to at least think of food as something that deserves attention, that deserves love, that deserves care, that it shouldn't just be something that feeds our bodies, but that feeds our soul and our responsibility to be better in this world. Food is ubiquitous, it's power, it's love, it's connection, it's culture, it's everything. And how we eat really does matter and how we eat around our friends and family has a tremendous impact. There's no right or wrong way um, that fits for everyone, but there is a right or a wrong way that fits for us and our individual bodies, even on a health level, mm -hmm. as you know, given you know our own medical needs. And so while there is a right or wrong way for each individual, I'm not here to say how one person should eat. We know generally that we should eat more plant forward meals as a society, as a culture, but there are some cultures that could benefit from eating more animal-based protein. And so there is no objective truth, again, and I think that that's something that needs to be reminded of. You know, we shouldn't say everyone should be a vegan. That simply doesn't work. It simply isn't respectful sometimes, given the local context. It simply isn't sustainable sometimes. Mm. So again, I think just going back to understanding that food is love. And I know we're on a scientific podcast and we might be wanting statistics and, and some more concrete data, but sometimes the qualitative matters as well. And this is one of those contexts whereby um, if we lead with love, if we lead, we lead with heart, um, we'll get to the data and to the truth of what is right for each one of us. Yeah. No, that's, that's beautifully said. I mean, I can say after interviewing, you know, gosh, we're getting close to 200 people on the show some common themes that come across are, you know, plant forward doesn't have to be only plant, but plant forward is, is a big, is a big driver for both planetary and human health, eating locally whenever possible. Um, 
you know, and, and really enjoying the meal with friends, with family. I feel like in, in so many ways, we're so disconnected from our foods, not just because we don't know where our food comes from, but we don't take the time to really savor it as a, as a group, you know, humans are such social animals and, you know, we are animals. I think we also forget that too. It's like, we need that nourishment of our bodies, but also that, that social nourishment as we, as we enjoy those, those items. So, yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering within your book, are there a lot of pulses? Pulses have come up again and again on the show, kind of a more of a bean protein is, is a big, is a big positive I've been hearing, especially with recent interviews. Where do you see the role of, of beans in these diets? Absolutely. Absolutely. Pulses, beans are wonderful. I mentioned that we conducted the carbon and nutrition calculations for all of the recipes in the cookbook Mm -hmm. and in support of human and planetary health. And the bean recipe, the black bean Mayan recipe, had the lowest carbon footprint out of all of the recipes in the book. Mm. And so, yeah, it's no surprise. It's great for human health because they're rich in protein. They're, you know, complementary proteins, you know, with all of the complementary amino acids when paired with a, a grain. And so they're great for human health, rich in fiber. We know this. But also as it relates to planetary health, they require a lot less water to grow you know, as compared to other animal-based proteins. Um, they don't require as much land and they're available in so many different contexts around the world. I mean, we recently launched our children's book, How Does Our Food Grow? with Familius and, and Brooke Jordan. And we have the, a, a bean recipe there a spread of about two pages, just talking about beans from all over the world. You know, we have edamame in Japan. We have the black bean one I mentioned in Mexico, you know, from Mexico to Japan, there are endemic crops that are representative of the same family. And so it speaks a lot to our human family and how we're able to connect over pulses and Mm -hmm. over the quote unquote, right food, because in this context, you know, it's as close as we can get to finding, you know, a global solution. Awesome. Well, let's get onto some of these global solutions. Another question that I had to you is, is around, you know, how the intersection between food insecurity and climate change, how are these connected? And what are some of the ways that some of these UN-based programs are or even within the Kitchen Alliance, what are some of the ways that you're trying to tackle this issue of, of this interconnection between climate change and, and food insecurity? Absolutely. I am an optimist, but if I, I can be a little bit more <laughs> objective here. We have to address the fact that not only is our food system affected by climate change, you know, among us in the space, we, we're aware that up to 30% of all greenhouse gases are attributable to the food system. Mm. This is from farm to table um, in the way that food is produced, in the way that it's discarded. The methane that's produced from the over a third of all fruits and vegetables that are wasted um, contributes heavily to climate change. The transportation of our food, you know, across continents is very detrimental to those um, greenhouse gas emissions. And then Ultimately, the way that food is prepared at home and discarded of, there's a lot of waste, you know, pre-production, but also post-production. So all of these things are contributing to climate change. Meat consumption 
if, you know, if it's not in balance, if, if we're eating too much meat, which we are as a global society at this point, um, contributes heavily because of the amount of uh, cows that are needed and, and different kinds of livestock um, and how much land they need to graze. The trees are cut down, so carbon capture is not as effective when the trees are gone. And so these are the challenges presented on one side by the food system contributing to climate change. And then on the other end, because our climate is changing as a result of these greenhouse gases and um, you know different weather patterns, we're losing food, food supply. We're losing fish in the ocean. The ocean captures over 30% of all greenhouse gases. But what that means is that there's a lot of carbon that's going into the oceans that wasn't there before. And so these fish are dying, which means that other fish that eat and rely on those fish for their supply are dying as well. Fishermen are then affected. Um, their livelihoods are affected. We see that increasing rainwater is you know, causing land to recede. That's land that's being lost for farming. That means there's less food. And you know the issues can go on and on. We see that food prices are then increasing because there's less food. And so, uh, as you said, the, the population is growing. Bigger people, you know, bigger population, less food, a more expensive food. It definitely increases the amount of food insecure people or the amount of people that rely more on packaged foods because they're more affordable. And so, of course, that then impacts human health. So we can go on and on sharing examples of how these issues are linked. The point is that there is an inextricable link between climate change and food security, and it's symbiotic in the sense that both food security and climate change are contributing to the aggravation of, of the problem. And so we have a lot of people working on both sides. You know, FAO has a whole division to reduce food waste, to work with farmers, to help with the pre-production uh, food loss that, that happens. They're also working with governments to help consumers reduce their food waste. I know of this incredible program in Korea, whereby in cities, people have to weigh their garbage and actually pay for how much garbage they dispose of in their apartments. And so, you you know, you bet this is leading people to <laughs> as much as they can, you know, turn as much as they can into kimchi and other, you know, canned items. And so we need more of that, you know. Compost machines are becoming more common in cities. And so yeah. this is great to see, but we do need more. And the UN is a starting point, but it needs to work with governments that are supportive and accepting of these initiatives. And that ultimately means that, you know, we uh, in democracies need to vote for these initiatives and, and be aware that they exist. So education is key. And from there, we can go anywhere we want. Yeah. I mean, I think the point here too, it's, it's education in the sense of understanding the bigger picture of the science of how ecosystems work. But I think it's also about practical education. You know, I was heavily influenced by my grandmother who was very frugal and she just always taught me to get the most out of anything. So like, for example, <laughs> um, well, we live, we live in the suburban environment. So we have you know, a small yard, we have a compost pile in our garden where, you know, which is a different opportunity than you would have in a city apartment. But as you said, compost is becoming, compost bins are, you know, becoming more and more, I think, accessible in apartments. But it's also just about getting better use out of your food. 
So for example, I made limoncello. I do this almost every year as, as holiday presents for friends and family. And after I, you know, nice. took the rinds off the lemons, I then squeezed the lemons and made lemonade. And then I took those, you know, the, the, the remainder of the, of the, of the squeezed lemons that had already been peeled and just jammed them in a jar and covered it with vinegar, let that seep. And now I had a lemon based vinegar cleaning solution. So here you have nice. all these different things that come out of, you know, just a, a small bowl of lemons, but it's how do you get the most out of our food products? And we've had some other episodes where I've had, you know, fermentation gurus talk about how to create really nutritious food products for pets or things to enrich your garden soil through fermenting what we would otherwise toss out as just like a scrap that we might, you know, like apple cores or, you know, carrot tops, things that we may not think of as like being useful. So I think there's a practical education mm -hmm. that needs to happen as well. And that's where I think it's exciting when you can share such ideas, you know, through, through videos, through educational videos or activities with people. So this brings me to my next question, because I know you're also working as an adjunct instructor uh, or professor at NYU. So tell me a little bit about how your engagement with those students also plays into this bigger picture of education and outreach that you're that you're dedicated to. Absolutely. I think a lot of the education is structured in a way that is bottom up. A lot of it has to do with the fact that many of my students are older than I am. And <laughs> there's a lot of learning that comes with experience. And so the course is structured in a way that allows for a lot of exchange, a lot of learning on both sides. And so, of course, you know, given my experience in the field, I do have a lot to share. But then towards the middle, the class turns into, okay, what do you have to share, given the fact that many of you have worked in this field, many of you are connected to these topics in a way that, you know, is very visceral. NYU is very global. So a lot of students, you know, have a connection directly to many of the topics. And then after going to the United Nations, where they get a private tour of the different initiatives that the UN is working on in the space, um, they apply that to their, you know, specific topics and then end the course actually presenting at the United Nations to those same experts that shared with them in the beginning. So it is a full circle experience. One of my favorite things ever, because I get to learn a lot. You know, I sit there taking notes and just getting really excited about the prospects of some of these projects actually being implemented. Um, like any course, I mean, there are some people who are there just to learn and move on, but other people obviously, you know, really deeply care. And so I've had the great pleasure of continuing to work on some of these projects with the students outside of the class. Um, some of them have, you know, interned for me. Now, some of them are going on to be professors at Cambridge, not directly because of the course, but simply because of their passion and ongoing commitment to the cause. And overall, it's just great to see a community of people where the truth leads. And I think that's the beauty of academia, that really it's a space for truth. It's a space for knowledge and a space for, um, you know, science. And, and I think that's, you know, the best part of, of this structure and that, that environment. That's great. Well, and I had one last question about, you know, I know that you're also on the boards of some nonprofits and educational organizations. 
what can you share with us about those? And yeah, just anything you might want to share about, about what that looks like and what those organizations are up to. Absolutely. I personally love homestays. I didn't go really into the Ghana story at the beginning because it's a long story, but I think there's a lot to learn about sharing, you know, in, in people's personal spaces and, and in their foods and in their cultures and how they live and how um, they interact with one another. And so I've been fortunate to, you know, I think travel to all seven continents at this point in Antarctica was in 2021, and I became an ambassador through IATO for Antarctica, promising to advocate for climate change and all of the you know, issues that are impacting this sort of unclaimed territory that belongs to all of us. And so in a lot of the places that I've traveled to, I always make it a point to, yes, do the touristy things, but to also slow down and meet with people in their homes. And so I came across an organization called Serve Us. And the whole goal is to facilitate exchange with locals through this platform. It's kind of like couchsurfing, but it's a little older, I think, and, and a bit less technology forward, but still really awesome. You see many generations of Servas members hosting travelers. And I think having that moment while abroad is, is a beautiful way to really get to know a culture. Um, and so I was fortunate to you know, be asked to be on the board of that organization and to learn a lot about people around the world with the ultimate goal of promoting peace. And so it's not just an opportunity to meet people and, you know, have a home cooked meal, but also to promote peace. And so peace happens when we come together, mm-hmm. when we talk about the issues, but when we resolve them in a, in a way that, you know, benefits everyone. And yeah, that's an organization that I can share about connected to this work and directly. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I'm, I'm inspired by all that you're doing, Erlene. I think this is really exciting. The impact that you can have through these organizations and through the UN and through working with your students to raise awareness around food systems and how our food is so closely tied to our planetary health and our human health and how climate change impacts us all. So I want to thank you for your initiatives and thank you for sharing this with us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to John at the Rockefeller Foundation, John de la Para, for incentivizing me. I, you know, just a little side note, but I was like, I think I'm better at public speaking than I am at podcasts. I just don't know why. There's something about them. And he was like, I have just the person for you. And so I was reticent at first. I'm like, I'm just so bad at podcasts. But I felt very comfortable with you, as oh, he promised would be the great. case. So well, thanks John's, so much to him. And yeah. Uh, to you. That's- John's, John's a gem. I'm glad he set this up. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Erlene. All right. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded for you today on Squadcast. If you'd like to find out more about the show, you can head on over to foodiepharmacology.com where we have some amazing swag. I have one of our cups right here, which I'm enjoying some nice Earl Grey tea in. I also want to send a big shout out of thanks to our producers to rob cohen and christine roth for putting on a great show for you each and every week if you want to learn more again foodiepharmacology.com we've also got the video version of this and all of our other episodes on the teach ethnobotany youtube channel and of course you can take a deeper dive in my newsletter in nature's pharmacy on substack thanks so much for listening stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time